0: Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. And I'm your host, Mike Allen. The Cavalry. They are soldiers on horseback and they have swords and rifles and bayonets, and they gallop towards the enemy in a very imposing way. Well, when the Revolutionary War started, the Patriots didn't even have such a unit, and General George Washington decided to change that, and he called on Connecticut to form the first such units. Now, not only did this Connecticut unit lead the first cavalry charge in U.S. military history, but they started the Pony Express and an incredibly important spy ring that targeted New York City. And just wait until you hear the vivid description of that first cavalry charge. It'll send shivers down your spine. Well, this unit, the Connecticut Second Light Dragoons, is still active, and here to tell us about the history of this amazing group is its current commander, Captain Salvatore Tarantino, who goes by just Sal. And now, how Connecticut horsemen helped win the Revolutionary War. There's an old saying, bring in the cavalry. It meant that when you had soldiers riding on very fast, strong, and imposing horses, you could literally turn the tide of a military engagement to your advantage. Just imagine if the soldiers could manage to sneak around your flank to the side of you with their horses and then attack you from the side while you're fighting off ground-based soldiers and cannons who are out in front of you. Well, not a pretty picture. Having a cavalry gives you, obviously, a leg up over the enemy. In fact, it's kind of hard to imagine fighting a war in the old days without having such units. But that's just what happened to the Patriot forces who were fighting the British for U.S. independence in the Revolutionary War. The Connecticut Second Light Dragoons, and dragoons is French for dragons, is still actually in existence. They've got about 20 to 30 members. The state legislature officially resurrected the famous squad, so that we can know today what it was truly like in yesteryear when the Patriots fought the British. It's incredibly complex to fight a battle while riding a horse, and you're going to hear all about that. In fact, this squad has so many accolades to its credit, it's hard to squeeze them all into one episode, but we're going to try. And We're going to start off with the fact that the Second Light Dragoons was the first U.S. Army unit to ever lead a cavalry charge on behalf of the U.S. military. The Dragoons are led by Captain Salvatore Tarantino, who actually keeps and trains the same types of horses at his farm in eastern Connecticut that they rode back in the 1700s. Beyond that, Captain Tarantino, and he prefers to be called just Sal, is a fountain of knowledge about all things military, starting back in the Revolutionary War days. So let's start off with the basics. My understanding, Sal, is that the Connecticut Second Light Dragoons was the very first military organization in U.S. history to ever lead a cavalry charge, meaning actually fighting on horseback. Do do I have that right?
1: You are right. The first commissioned cavalry. Washington sends a note to Congress saying there's no doing without them. The next day on December 12, 1776, Congress approves it. As At that date, we are commissioned as the first commissioned cavalry. The name as the second is because they had reserved for the Virginia Light Horse under Washington a uh, commissioning, but that did not come through until January 3rd, 1777. So we were the actual first
0: ones. So it's a bit of an unfortunate twist of fate that Connecticut gets called the Second Light Dragoons, even though technically they were commissioned first and started work before the Virginia Dragoons. But I guess it, since George Washington was from Virginia, there was probably not going to be any arguing that. Now, isn't it true that the cavalrymen in the Dragoons were considered pretty old, even though they weren't really, in today's standards, all that old?
1: They were considered old men at the time because they were approaching the ages of 26 to 30, or, God forbid, 31 or over. And they were called men beyond the pale of life by the younger men. Most people don't understand, but most of you are younger troops serving in the wall uh, at that point were the 15 to 18-year-olds. Most of our officers that would come about later were between 18 and
0: 23. Well, that makes me feel pretty old right now. Now, when you speak from a strictly military perspective, tactically, we know the Patriot forces didn't have a navy, right? They relied on whaling boats and private boatmen to have any role there whatsoever against the highly superior British fleet. But when it came to having a cavalry, men on horseback, the Patriots simply couldn't afford to do without it, right?
1: Dirt roads with ice and snow, they were doing 20 miles a day. And that points out the strategic need for horsemen. Infantry in that type of condition can do maybe five or six miles a day tops. A horseman can do 20. The tactical advantage shifts to the unit, the army that has the
0: horsemen. Well, and it's really not so simple coordinating the horses and training the soldiers for the first time, is it?
1: People see the movies. Those are trained horses. These horses are used to everything. You're talking men who know nothing. It would be like giving you a musket and saying you're now in the second dragoon. You wouldn't know what to do. You wouldn't know if you were going to have a uniform. You wouldn't know how to use the firearm. And now suddenly you're going to be taught all of this and you're going to have to compete against a professional British soldier. They had to learn the art of using the musket on foot. They had to learn to drill on foot as the infantry. When you take that and you say, oh, by the way, you have to learn to ride a horse. Then you have to learn how to train that horse, the gunfire, saber fights. And then you have to be able to do the same off his back. All adds up.
0: So to get all this going, I guess Washington had to know who could manage it, You know, handle the horses, train the soldiers. And I guess he also had to have people who had extra funds to help outfit a group because it was so expensive. So at that point, he turned to Colonel Elijah Sheldon of Connecticut.
1: Sheldon was off getting the money out of Philadelphia for General Washington. So he was already moving up in the confidence of Washington as a horseman and what he could do. A lot of these men were senior officers in the infantry, and they were promoted to cavalry. Deep pockets prevailed. You had the money. And to outfit a man was terribly expensive. These days, to out a dragoon on foot, it runs us about... Horses are horrendous. To outfit a single man on a horse to get them in modern terms would be about $8,000, $9,000. Back then, that would have been just horrendous beyond belief. Horses were hard to come by. He needed these horsemen now. We're finding out that what George Washington wanted and ordered is not necessarily what they got. Very hard. We actually have here at the farm those horses that match his orders. And I can tell you, it is a nightmare trying to get such animals here and getting them trained. We can understand what they went through. Through their eyes, it is a horrible time.
0: But in the overall scheme of things, that was just a little bump in the road, because despite all that, Washington ended up winning the Connecticut Second Light Dragoons by his side at all times. And that's the essence of what happened in July of 1777.
1: They him and in July, there's also an order for seven of them to be his bodyguards. And from that point in 1777 until the very last day when Washington leaves New York after his farewell address, the second have members there with him escorting him.
0: Well, now it's time to tell the story of the famous battle, the battle of the name I love, the Battle of the Flocky. Now, it's actually one of those milestone events in U.S. military history that very few people have ever heard about in fact i hadn't heard about it but the battle actually marks the very first cavalry charge ever undertaken by a formal u.s military unit now to set this up the second light dragoons were in the strategic county of Schoharie in new york it's uh, west of albany and they were taking on a british unit near i guess it's tory man tavern tell us what that was like
1: most people understand that Skahari Valley was a breadbasket center for all the Northern Army. We found the actual battlefield. All the spots that exist, include Toryman Tavern. What happens is that they came in, they took over the tavern, they went down to Middle Fort and Skahari, where the farm is, where the uh, the loyalists were gathering. They did a full-out cavalry charge. It's a very frightening thing. Essentially, it's a controlled A stampede is probably the best word, as you see in the old westerns. Everything is moving forward. Time seems to slow down as you're moving forward. And you can feel the horse under you. You can hear the animals snoring and screaming and the jingling of the equipment and the men yelling and screaming because you're going at 40 miles an hour. And when the horses pick up to that speed, you can't stop them. You need plenty of space to stop them. And at that point, when they ran it to the enemy, it was so effective that the British didn't come back to the valley for two years.
0: Well, now we come around to another major accomplishment of the Dragoons. And again, something I didn't know, and I'm sure a lot of people didn't know, it was non-combative in nature. But isn't it true that they started what would come to be known as the Pony Express?
1: Yes. Washington was using our men as couriers in the north. Typical route was from Governor Trumbull at Hartford, where the War Council would meet That would move all the way across the upper part of Connecticut over to Litchfield. From Litchfield, they would go over the mountain in the upper part of New York State, and they would go over across the Storm Mountain, and from there, they would find wherever Washington was at Newburgh, or they could go towards West Point. And these couriers' job was to ride and ride as much as they could.
0: You know, there's a side note I want to talk about here, too. It's interesting when you talk about the fact that Officers could actually pick which side they would fight for back in the day.
1: Everyone takes the modern military history and tries to interpret that as what they did then. And you're not. You're comparing an apple to a watermelon. 18th century warfare was considered a profession. And officers of higher rank would switch sides as corporate officers would today in companies. That's the the closest analogy I can give you. So going over to the enemy didn't necessarily mean you were an American traitor. It meant you got a better offer. When you decided to betray your information, that's where that fine line comes in, that gray line of traitor, non-traitor.
0: That's just amazing. Well, this brings us now to the infamous Culper spy ring. Now, that was started by several, I guess, high-ranking members of the Dragoons, in particular this guy Major Benjamin Talmadge. Tell me what we know about that.
1: The second itself was engaged in a lot of this. The actual letters and reports are in the Governor Crumble papers up in Hartford. Sheldon was involved. Talmadge had the ring. Captain Bull was involved. These are men that I've seen sign off on the letters. Unfortunately, with what happened up there some years ago with the uh, the theft of different papers, I can't get the copies that we want.
0: Well, I didn't know anything about this. What What are you talking about?
1: During the bicentennial, people were going up there with concealed razors and the like, they were cutting out parts of these original documents. At that time, you could go in, and you could literally pull the book off the shelf, or they would bring it over to you. You could sit there and thumb through all the collection of letters, like you would in a modern library book. And people were extracting parts of these letters and selling them on the market.
0: That's just amazing. So to focus on Talmadge for a second, now, he gets tapped by General George Washington to actually start this spy ring.
1: Spies and loyalists, well, we know their spies were very active. They were had infiltrated every level of life in Connecticut and in New York State. The result was that Washington was being outdone at every turn. He needed his own counter. Talmadge was one of those people. He was doing the, the stuff with the, the troops being stationed along the Connecticut coast to watch British shipping. The idea was to count how many warships, how many sloops of war transports that sort of thing that were going into Manhattan to see where troop buildup was. They needed intelligence. Talmadge was no nonsense. He'd come from Setauket. That's where his home was. Had no like for the British or Tories. And in 77, as the senior officer in the second, that gave him discretion to do other duties. Talmadge was directing a lot of this. He was very learned. He had studied at Yale. So did Nathan Hale. He then took some of this. And uh, decided to figure out some of the plotting of the time, information that he could get from France, from uh, other sources, from English sources, too. And they formed a group of people to get information. It probably started out, if I understand right, more or less on the ad hoc type. wonder what they're doing. And within weeks or months, as this information proved to be very valuable, uh, it was formalized. And George formalizes it. And appoints Talmadge. Now, Talmage had the Northern mm-hmm. Ring, which is the most famous because that's the operations around New York. They used both men and women and children, which you don't hear about. They were using 12-year-old kids that would, of course, not be challenged by the Brits. We have to understand the, the social end of things back then was that a child knew mm-hmm. nothing in the eyes of each side. Women knew very little. It was a man-dignated man dictated man And if you were old enough and looked old enough as a boy man, then you were open for investigation and interrogations. But before that, you weren't because what would you know? What do you know of the world type attitude by British intelligence? And it was the same with the American intelligence. We're living in a a different society today. In their time, that wasn't what it was. Women and children were the property of of the man, period. So what does property know? Once you put it into that text, you see how each side used that psychological vent to get information across.
0: Yeah, a different time indeed. Well, you know, I've read about a woman named, I guess her name was Anna Strong. And uh, as I understand it, she sent spy signals just by the way she hung her laundry out to dry.
1: Yeah, exactly. Different color petticoats, different color kerchiefs. And kerchiefs put at a certain point on her clothesline to dry. Could be signaled to the whaleboats offshore. People have no idea that back then that was a strategic point for the longboats, the uh, whaleboats. They would be the fellows that would see the the signals from her and other people. There were flags that were used also. They would then know who was coming or not coming.
0: And I guess they had another trick using the printed word in a pretty clever way, I would say. They were, in fact, sneaking the information literally (laughs) right under the nose of the British by publishing it in something called Rivington's Gazette.
1: Rivington's Gazette, the second in charge of the editing, wrote the stories that, of course, made it look great to the British. But it was information embedded that could get back to the American side. And we found out that it was getting back to the American side at a place called Dobbs Ferry about two miles south of Terrytown is what they call the Flags area. And there, British officers and American officers would meet. They would exchange prisoners, notes, information. And one of the items that the Americans always wanted was Riveting's Gazette. They wanted to know what was going on in the world, quote-unquote. And, of course, the Brits were more than happy to give it to them, not knowing that Rivington's assistant was in our spy network. And the way he wrote the documents was... And these reports that were going on and how glorious the British forces were actually gave information to the Americans. Talmadge was very good at this, very good at this. I mean, he had all sorts of spies and connectors and people that were working up and down the coast from what is today Madison, Guilford, Connecticut, all the way down to Horse Neck, which was part of Greenwich, the lower part of Greenwich, Connecticut. So that whole coastline had people watching, doing things, reporting things.
0: And one more footnote about the Connecticut Second Light Dragoons. When Benedict Arnold did his big traitorous deed, and that was when he traded the secrets to West Point to the British and returned for a high commission with the British Army, the Brit who got the secret papers was caught, and that's how the whole thing unraveled. Well, the person responsible for keeping that captured British spy officer in captivity was none other than a member of the Connecticut Second Light Dragoons. up this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I very much want to thank my guest for this episode, Captain Salvatore Tarantino, head of the Connecticut Second Light Dragoons. One last comment about the Dragoons. You know, there were only seven Revolutionary War officers who lived to see the age of photography ushered in, and one of them was Lemuel Cook, a Connecticut Second Light Dragoon member. Well, next week on Amazing Tales CT... It was the Connecticut equivalent of Valley Forge, a winter encampment where soldiers faced harsh conditions, insufficient food and clothing, and yet did their job and protected the fledgling young new country. We'll be talking about Putnam Park in Reading, an episode that, trust me, you won't want to miss. If you like this show, make sure you follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please tell your family, friends, and colleagues all about Amazing Tales so they can hear these stories, too. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and please stay healthy.